Thank you, worship team. We appreciate that so very much. And uh, honored that we can be here today. Go ahead and make your way in the New Testament to the Gospel of John, to the 18th chapter. That's where we'll be at today. We finished chapter 17 last week. And uh, we had that great high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed for himself. And then he prayed for his disciples. And then he prayed for us. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the arrest and the betrayal in Gethsemane. But before I get there, I want to give a little introduction, but start with a story. There was this elderly man in church. And when I say elderly anymore, that kind of gets closer to home than it used to. But uh, this man who was a little bit older, how about I say that, uh, was, barely got by. And, uh, but active in church, loved the Lord, people loved him. And he had an older brother that passed away. And the rest of the family, as they were looking at the will, realized that George, this older man, was going to get a million dollars. And they were concerned that he might have a heart attack if they told him that outright. So they went to the pastor, his pastor, and said, would you care to go to George and kind of warm him up to the idea that he may be getting an inheritance? And he said, well, certainly. So the pastor went to George, and they made some small talk. And then he said to George, he said, George, if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? He said, well, I would give it to the church. And the pastor had a heart attack. (laughs) Today's message really is about our reactions. And uh, in our reactions, they kind of tell a lot about us. Our actions build our reputation, but our reactions determine and show our character. And uh, we can plan our actions. For instance, this morning I knew I was going to be speaking, so my wife put me in a nice pair of pants and shoes that were shined and an iron shirt and a coat and prepared me for that. Those, those are actions that we took this morning, and that's one thing. And it, I could go and say, well, you know what? When I'm standing here with a Bible in my hand, that's probably not the best reflection of who I am. Because this is an action, I prepared for this. But the reactions, maybe you should be around me when somebody gets in my face and starts giving me a hard time. And then you would see what my character is. And that would be my reaction. And hopefully I would have the right reaction. And hopefully my actions are normally about right as well. So what we're going to understand by looking at Jesus and how he handles this situation in the Garden of Gethsemane is to see how he handled pressure. Because if you ever think someone was under pressure, it was certainly Jesus in the garden. And uh, he's about to be rested. He's about to be put on at least six different trials. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried that next day. But John brings out some details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic writers, do not bring out. And uh, it's interesting what we do find in his accounts. And we do see how Jesus faced this uh, crisis, this crisis in the midst of his, uh, I guess, maybe his most human point. Because there in the garden, he cried out in desperation and pain and loneliness and isolation. But it's amazing when he's faced with the trial of these Roman soldiers and the temple guards that he stays as cool as the other side of the pillow. 
I mean, he is a cool character because he's already fought the battle in the garden. So let's learn how we can keep cool in a crisis. How we don't overreact in times of trial. All right? Stand with me and let's read the first 11 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they said to him, or answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off the right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? Father, I just ask that you allow us to understand how we are to react as believers. And Father, our actions show one thing, but also, Lord, our reactions show another. So help us, Father, to be so grounded in the Word and grounded in who we are that we don't overreact and don't uh, do things like Peter did by taking the sword and cutting off the high priest's servant's ear. Help us, Lord, to not be so vindictive and uh, speak when we should be silent. And Father, I just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we find ourselves in crisis at times, and how we react speaks a lot about our character. And it's so easy to react the wrong way and reveal our true character. And that's something that we have to work on, and the Holy Spirit of God has to work on within us. But I want to take Peter and Jesus and show you the reaction of Peter and then counter it with the reaction of Jesus and then show how we too should react in these times of adversity and crises that come upon our way. So I'm going to give you three or four of those. First one I want to give you is this. How do you react when a friend betrays you? Because Judas was one of the twelve. He, he was a close friend, associate of Jesus. He was one that kept the money. He was one that, that had walked with Christ, that had eaten with Christ, that, that had been in the group. They all slept in the same areas. And he had been with him listening to his teaching and his preaching and his healing and his all of the things that he had done. He would seen the miraculous things that Christ had done. Yet Judas betrays him. And that's incredible that we might think, how in the world could Judas betray Jesus? Well, Jesus wasn't caught off guard. He knew Judas would betray him. In chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now, he said that all the way back in John 6. He knew he was not taken off guard. And now here we are in chapter 18, the last days of Jesus' life. And he said, You know what? One of you is a devil. 
And I'm certain that they thought, well, who could it be? Who could it be? And Judas, as we know, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You know how much money that is? It's about $200 in today's currency. For $200, he betrayed Christ. And that's unimaginable. I would at least held out for a better deal. But uh, Judas, he was trying to uh, get in good with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And we find out that backfired on him as well. And Judas will always be known as a backstabbing friend. You know, you don't hear of anybody named Judas. People don't name their children Judas. Uh, They name their children a lot of other names. But that name is associated with betrayal. And nobody wants to be called a Judas. I came across this. This was pretty interesting. And it's a, a child summary of the New Testament. And it kind of made me smile, but it has some truth in it. So I'm going to read it to you. It says, that's coming from a child's perspective, Jesus is the star of the New Testament. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like the Pharisees and the Republicans. <laughs> Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached to some Germans on the mount. Jesus also had 12 opossums. The worst one was Judas Asparagus. Judas was so evil that they named a terrible vegetable after him. (laughs) Children say the darndest things. But as we think about this, and this betrayal that Judas betrayed Jesus for a couple hundred dollars, when you're betrayed by a friend, it hurts, doesn't it? And most of us at some point in our lives have been betrayed by a friend. And we want to say, e tu brute. You, my friend, are doing this to me as well. But that, unfortunately, happens many times. But we're going to see Peter's reaction first. And then we'll look at Jesus' reaction. And we're going to look at three ways that Peter reacted here. And three ways that we need to learn not to react. First, Peter attacked the wrong enemy. Uh, This was a spiritual battle that was going on that night. And and Peter is fighting a battle with flesh and blood. In fact, we find out in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, it said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, Jesus had already fought the spiritual battle when he was sweating great drops of blood in the garden while the apostles, disciples, slept. And he asked them to pray. And they, they were so tired they nodded off. Their bellies were full. They had a, busy, had a busy day, a busy week actually. So they took the time to rest when they should have been praying. But Satan was at work that night. And Satan had entered into Judas. And Judas was going to betray Jesus. And what we need to understand is this. The source, now listen to me, the source of all violence, the source of all hatred, the source of all death, the source of all disease in our world today is from Satan. And I hear so many people say sometimes, they say these words, well, you know, I'm just so mad at God. If you want to get mad at somebody, get mad at Satan. Don't get mad at God. God's a good God. He protects us. 
But it's so easy to point the blame at God because, well, God, you could have done this. But there's a spiritual battle, and we need to understand that. It's not just a battle of flesh and blood. Because Jesus said in John's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. But he said, I've come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. It may be a richer, fuller, deeper life. And that's the life that Christ wants us to have. So Peter, first off, he attacked the wrong enemy. Secondly, Peter used the wrong weapon. (laughs) When I think about this, he had this sword. And this was not a, a long saber, but it was a short sword. And he pulls out his sword and he goes to work. But under Roman law, it was against the law... For anybody to have a weapon like this, unless you were in the Roman guard or you were in the temple guard. And if you weren't in one of those, you weren't allowed under Roman rule to have that weapon. It would be like today uh, having an undocumented pistol and you're not allowed to have those. We are to go about things the right way. Our firearms should be licensed. And Peter had this sword. And another group of people also had these short swords. And they were called sakari or zealots or knife people, people of the knife. Because what they would do, they would get in a crowd and these sakari, these zealots, would pull out their knife and they would kill a Roman soldier trying to cause an uprising so the nation of Jerusalem could be freed from Roman oppression. And that happened often. If they were caught, they were put to death, they were crucified. So Peter uses the wrong weapon. Now, there's a better sword that God wants us to take. And it's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, and here it is, which is the Word of God. So what he's saying is, if you really want the right protection, you need to take the right sword. And once you use that sword, great things are going to happen. Now fast forward 50 days from this time. And guess what happens? We're, we're at Passover, and 50 days later, you have Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, we find out what happened at Pentecost. It said, now when, heart, when they heard this, Peter's preaching, same Peter that cuts off Malchus' ear, and they were cut to their hearts, a different kind of cutting. And Peter said, Peter and the rest of the apostles said, Men and brethren, they said, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. So guess what? Peter, when he was using the human sword, he lops off the ear of Malchus. But when he uses the sword of the Word of God, 3,000 people come to know Christ in the preaching one simple sermon. There is power in the Word. There's power in the Word. And, and Peter learned that, but he had to make the mistakes to learn the right way to do things. And it's amazing. Peter sw- swung this sword, 3,000 were saved. He swung the other sword, and one man suffered injury. Third way, Peter did the wrong thing. He displayed the wrong attitude. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to give Peter credit for one thing. He may be impetuous, but also he did say, I will go to the death with you, Jesus. 
And uh, I don't know what the other guys are doing, but we know what Peter's doing. But we know all of them will soon run away with fear in their hearts. But Peter displayed this wrong attitude. He had been sleeping when he should have been praying. And when he awoke, you know when you wake up, you're not really with it, are you? You're not at yourself. It takes, it takes me a little while to really wake up. And Peter, I'm sure, was the same way. He woke up and he saw this mob, saw this scene. And he sees Jesus, he sees Judas, and uh, he's going to react. And he does react. But the Bible's clear what, when we react with anger, what damage it causes. In James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, So then, my beloved brethren, brethren, this is the brother of Jesus writing, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, what what he's basically saying is, bring the temperature down. Don't be so angry. Don't overreact. Keep it cool. When you're in a crisis, stay calm. Don't get out of control. Don't say things that you would regret or do things that you would regret later. Learn to hold your tongue. Let the the words of life produce life, but don't let the the tongue produce death. Well, let's see how Jesus reacted. Jesus displayed divine restraint. You say, well, of course, He's God, but you also have to remember, He's 100% man. So, I mean, you know, He's got our flesh just like we do. And there's an amazing account here that I, I want to bring out, this, this detail. Verse 4 and 5. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. Now, usually what happens when attackers come? Retreat, right? Retreat. But Jesus went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, now really the translation is not perfect here. A better translation, most scholars believe, when Jesus said to them, He didn't say, I am He, He just said, I am. I am. And you know what that's going back to? That's going back to the book of Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 when Moses asked the burning bush, when he's speaking to God, who do I tell them to send me? And God said, tell him I am sent you. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm God. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, think about this. When this Roman guard came, we always think there's a handful The terminology in the Bible, there were probably 600 Roman soldiers there that day. 600 coming for one guy. I mean, they expected a fight. And also the Roman guard, because Malchus was part of the Roman guard. So they had over 600 people coming for Jesus. But watch what happens next in verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am he... They drew back and fell to the ground. When the divine nature of Jesus, when He said, I am, He was displaying restraint. But guess what they did? They fell down as though dead. 
Now, I came across this as I was researching this New Testament scholar. His name is Dick Renner, and he agrees with what I just said. He said, the members of this militia that came to arrest Jesus were knocked flat by some kind of force. In fact, the verse says they went backward and fell to the ground. And here's what he said. The words to the ground are taken from the Greek word kamaya, which depicts these soldiers falling abruptly and hitting the ground hard. Some force unexpectedly, suddenly, and forcefully knocked these, people, these troops and temple police flat. Wow. Can you imagine that? One guy, one man. He just says, I am. They fall flat as though dead. The power of the Word of God. What what Jesus was demonstrating here is this. He was demonstrating, you're not taking my life. I am willingly laying it down. And he does. He said, no man takes my life. I willingly lay my life down. And that's what he did. Because Jesus was fully surrendered to the Father. And he said, Lord, your will, not my will. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, he said, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down myself. And I have power to lay it down and power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus was saying, you know what? You're going to put me on the cross. You're going to bury me in a tomb. But I'm doing it willingly. And guess what? You can't keep me in that tomb because I'm going to step out three days later. Stepping on the stairway of stars headed back to glory. And that's exactly what he did. Now... Jesus basically said, you know what? They have 600 soldiers. And Jesus said, you know what? Listen, that's not enough if I choose not to willingly go. Because I can defeat all of you. And not only that, but I can cause pandemonium by calling my angels from heaven. Now, as the soldiers moved forward, here's old Peter. Now remember, Peter is a sailor, not a soldier. So he swings wildly, cuts off Malchus' ear, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, and I'll describe what I think transpired at that point and what was probably going through Malchus' mind. But just give me a few more minutes here. Now when Jesus said he could call uh, 72 thousand angels, a legion of angels, 6,000. I can call 72,000. You know what? We really think of angels too much today. The common uh, misconception is we look at them as little chubby, childlike, cute cherubs. You know, maybe playing the, or being like Cupid. But that's not it. It's not it at all. When you read about angels in the Old Testament, New Testament, you read about warrior type angels. And these were warriors. I mean, and when we go back and look in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 37, and we read that chapter, we see that one angel alone killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were bearing down on Jerusalem. And what could 72,000 angels do if one could do that much damage in one night? Well... Let's look at the second way. How do you react when an enemy attacks you? How do you react? Now, I'm not talking about your neighbor. I'm talking about your wife or your spouse. I'm talking about you. 
Jesus and his disciples were attacked by this mob. Now, probably a good chance we're not going to be physically attacked by someone. I mean, it, it happens worldwide, but we haven't experienced that here in the United States very often. So there's a good chance that you probably won't be physically attacked for your belief. But people hide behind social media and they lob grenades that way today. And those grenades blow up and destroy lives and cause a lot of pain, a lot of insulting comments. So how do you react in the event that you are placed in a crisis? There's four levels of reaction. Now I'm going to start with the worst reaction and go to the best reaction. So keep that in mind. Number one, how we respond, evil for good. We respond evil for good that's been done to us. And I call that the demonic level. That's the demonic level. We respond evil for good. Judas clearly falls in this category as he would receive good from Jesus, but then he gives evil for the kindness. I mean, Jesus taught him, Jesus, even the night that he was betrayed, washed his feet. And then what does he do? He betrays Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. Or $200. You've heard the expression, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Ralph Cowart told me many years ago, he's gone, been to the Lord since 2017. He helped a lot of people, and I mean really helped a lot of people. And he told me in that booming Ralph Cowart voice, he used to sit on the second pew here, and about the time I was going to give the invitation, he couldn't hear it thunder. He'd be saying, what are we going to eat for dinner? But Ralph Cowart said to me one day, he said, Brother John, he said, those folks you help the most will hate you the most. And you know, often there's a lot of truth to that. You go that second mile, and what do they do? They expect you to go to the next mile, and the next mile, and the next mile. When you finally stop, then what happens? You're not a friend any longer, but you're an enemy. So the first and worst way that we can react is to give evil for good. The second way we react is this, is evil for evil. I mean, guess what? That's the revenge level. You, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. That's what Paul or Peter did that night, the revenge level. He attacked. And they were being attacked. He attacks back. It's an attitude of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, I don't get mad, I get even. That's that reaction. And that reaction also is a very bad reaction because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. In other words, turn the other cheek. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. But you do it to me, buddy, I'm going to do it to you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you worse. And that's a bad way to react. Third way to react is good for good. And that's what I call the duty level. I mean, you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Uh, you say nice things about me, I'll say nice things about you. You be nice to me, I'm going to be nice to you. But Jesus says that falls short of real agape love. And in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 46, it said, For if you love those who love you... What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, when this reciprocal type of thing is going on, that's not the highest. That's good. 
And that's kind, but it's not what God wants out of our life. So the, the highest level of our response or our reaction is this, is good for evil. And that's what we see the Lord doing. And I call that the Jesus level. And that's the level that we all need to work and strive to get to. I mean, even in the midst of this mob scene of Jesus being arrested, Jesus showed kindness. He was living out what he had said in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now, I want you to know, that's simple, isn't it? No, that's tough. That's tough. When you're mistreated, when you're maligned, when uh, people say things about you that are untrue and hurt you, it's not easy to do good to those who hate you and mistreat you. But Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Now, let's pause for a moment. Let's go back to Malchus, okay? Think about Malchus with me. I mean, he's, uh, to get his ear lopped off, he's right up there in the very front. So Malchus had bought into all of the misinformation that he had received from the high priest and the Pharisees. And uh, John's the only one who records this detail. John gives us his name. And the other Gospels do not. John's Gospel is written at the end of the first century. And I always wondered if Malchus became a believer. And uh, anyway, regardless, his name is mentioned here. But he had been brainwashed into believing that Jesus was a horrible man and that he was going to destroy their religion. He was going to destroy their nation. The Romans were going to further uh, condemn these men and, and put them in more harsh conditions than they were in at this moment. So Jesus had to be stopped at any cost. And Malchus was willing to do his part. He was ready. He was right there ready to grab Jesus. And that's when Peter swung that sword and cut off his right ear. And imagine, if you had your ear cut off, you're probably going to experience some pain. And Malchus probably went to the ground and probably put his hand to his ear, what used to be his ear. And then he comes back and there's blood. And in Jewish culture, if you, your nose or your ear was gone, that's the worst kind of deformity. And now he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness, I may bleed to death. Wait, I might live and lose my job because I can't go back into the temple being deformed. I don't know, this is the worst day of my life. I don't know what I'm going to do. But then Jesus lovingly reaches down, picks up his ear, and places it back on Malchus. That was the last miracle that Jesus would do before going to the cross. It was a miracle of kindness. Now imagine, when Malchus looked into Jesus' eyes, what do you think he saw? Hatred or love? Love. And this is the man that was trying to be the first to grab Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, 22, 15, 51. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. I mean, now that's as cool as the other side of the pillow, isn't it? I mean, that is being under control. And that is meekness at its greatest point. People think meekness is weakness, but meekness is power under control. And Jesus was under control that evening.
Then, as Jesus' betrayer approaches him, how do you react? How do you react when God's will is unpleasant? Wait, God's will is always pleasant. No, 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 no. No. Sometimes God's will is not pleasant for us. We will go through struggles. Gethsemane, Jesus, what He's gone through means olive press. Olives were pressed, and there's still olive presses there today, and olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And these olives would be pressed, and then they would be pressed a second time. And then they would be pressed a third time. And that is a picture of the pressure that Jesus was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane that evening. Because He was was pressed once. He was pressed twice. He was pressed three times. And you say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus said three times, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. He said it once. He said it twice. He said it three times. But then He says, nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. Wow. When you're under pressure, how do you react? When you're struggling, what do you do? When we're facing unpleasant circumstances, what do we often do? Do we take the sword or do we say, Father, not my will, but thy will. I will drink the cup that you have given me to drink. Well, there's two ways that we react. Number one, we swing the sword. Number one, we swing the sword. That obviously is the wrong way. I mean, Peter thought he could fix what was going wrong. That every situation could have an answer. But all he did was make a bloody mess by swinging the sword. And sometimes we do the same. Sometimes we think, you know what, I've got the answer to this. I've got this figured out. I can do it all on my own. And we put all of our energy and all of our ingenuity into that. And it still doesn't work out. So what we do when we're in a crisis, often the first first thing we think of is, well, I've got to figure out a way to fix this. I've got to figure out a way to resolve this. But sometimes we're powerless to resolve the crisis. I remember the story that uh, Ann and Glenn Lane told me when... Uh, hadn't been here terribly long. They had cattle back then and had a bull in the pen. And Glenn was in the pen with the bull and, and uh, Ann was on the outside and the bull started chasing Glenn and Glenn ran and climbed the fence and jumped over and, and uh, Ann said, were you praying? He said, no, I was running. <laughs> and she said, well, I was praying. <laughs> but guess what? He was on the inside. She was on the outside. <laughs> But in a crisis, what do we do? Sometimes we can take care of things, but oftentimes God puts us in a crisis that we have to depend upon Him. God's way is drink the cup. Drink the cup. I've set the cup out for you. Drink it. I know it's unpleasant. But what was so unpleasant about the cup that was before Jesus that day? I mean, think about what's going to experience. It's the terrible pain that Jesus is going to experience. I mean, enduring the lashes, 39 lashes, enduring spikes going through your hands and feet, enduring a crown of thorns being pushed down on your scalp, all of these things that he would experience, and then hanging on the cross for six long hours. The physical pain was one part of the cup. 
But it wasn't the worst part of the cup. The second thing in that cup was isolation. Isolation. All of his disciples would run. He would be there alone. The isolation. But even isolation from his father. And that had to be the worst isolation ever. In, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was all alone. But that wasn't the worst. The most horrifying content that resided in that cup that he had to drink was the sins of all of the world. I mean, think about this. When you have sinned, when you've sinned, and, and, <clears throat> and you know it, you don't want anybody to find out. I mean, especially if it's one of those big sins. But all sins sin. Do you know one of those big sins? I don't want anybody to find out. I'll be humiliated. But Jesus looked into that cup. In that cup were lies, murder, rape, hatred. All of the stains of the world were in that cup that he had to drink. And that cup, what was in that cup, what it would do would stain his sinless soul. But you know what Jesus did? He said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. So let me ask you, let me give you three last things just real quick. What do we need to do when we are in a crisis? First thing you need to do is pray. Pray. Lord, help me to understand. Help me, Father, because I don't know what to do. Secondly is surrender your will to the will of the Father. Father, here I am, whatever you desire, even if it's unpleasant, here I am. And then thirdly, we need to trust in the Lord for the results. You know, our kids have this saying with their children. When they go to the store and they're going to get something, they say, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. So, whatever you're going through, sometimes we get what we get, but our response is not to throw a fit. Surrender the will of God. Pray. And say, Lord, not mine, but thine will be done. And maybe that cup, maybe that's, you need to drink that cup of salvation. Maybe you need to drink that cup of baptism. Maybe you need to drink that ch- cup of church membership. Maybe you, you, you need to say, Lord, whatever you want, today I surrender to you because I know that you do all things well. Whatever decisions need to be made today, I pray that you'd make them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example. Thank you also, Lord, that we can glean from the truth of your word that you don't gloss over the mistakes of men and women, but Father, you show us a clear picture of humanity at its best and its worst. And Father, it's our responsibility to learn and grow and become what you desire us to be. 
So, Lord, whatever your will is today for every member in this, this uh, congregation, I pray, Father, it would be accomplished this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Stand